What's going on, everybody? Welcome to Wednesday edition of Texans All Access from the Hyundai Texans Radio Studio. I am your host, John Harris, football analyst, sideline reporter. Glad to be with you on this wonderful, wonderful night in our beautiful city of Houston, Texas. And we await the Indianapolis Colts on Sunday. Kind of an odd day today for the Texans over at the facility. No practices uh, they've had some sickness, not COVID, and they just wanted to take a day to step back, make sure everybody was okay, and they'll get back to work. Now, if you're going, well, wait a second. Well, they've had that happen last year in 2020, and they went out and won a game at the end of it. So I don't know if you're a superstitious type or just a little stitious, as Eli Manning likes to say. Yeah, who knows? It's the Colts. You know the Colts pretty well. Both teams are actually... Uh, a bit banged up. We'll get to that a little bit later in the show with the injury report. But we're going to kick off the show as we do each and every Wednesday. And that is with a visit, an exclusive visit, with the general manager of your Houston Texans, Nick Casario. We talked about a lot of different things in this sit-down interview. So let's rock, Mark, me, and Nick. All right, let's start here. I want to talk about the uh, Justin Reed situation for just a moment. Uh, Coach addressed it, so I know numerous members of the organization have talked about this, but from your perspective, keeping everybody on the same page, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I think we've been consistent from the beginning of the year. You know, any situation that we have with a player that comes up, you know, we always address it directly. Um, Coach Cully had a conversation with Justin before the game, informed of a decision, and, and we moved forward. Everybody was back in the building here yesterday, so we'll take it one week at a time. So, you know, again, I think Coach handled it. Coach addressed it. I don't really have anything to add. Um, you know, I think any conversations that we have, you know, with a player about whatever the situation is, we always keep it between ourselves and the player. You know, it's not something that, you know, we're going to discuss publicly. Nick, Sunday against the Jets, you get out to the 14-3 lead, then obviously they climb back and, and get in the ball game. What were your overall thoughts of coming out of Sunday, unfortunately, with the loss of the Jets? Yeah, each week, usually the game's going to come down to a handful of plays, six or eight plays, whatever it is. And in the case on Sunday, the Jets made those plays and we didn't. Going back to Tennessee, we were fortunately able to make those plays. So, you know, there was probably a handful of plays in the game that ultimately determined. Um, You know, and in the end, we didn't execute well enough, whether it was offensively, defensively, in a kicking game. And as a result, you know, the score and the result ended up being what it was. Running the ball has been difficult, but early on in that game, you had some cracks there. You were able to get some yardage on the ground and get some things moving. You had some momentum offensively that had been difficult to achieve previously. Yeah, we moved the ball at different points. We were able to create some movement along a scrimmage. You know, had some uh, had some decent double teams you know, on the left side with uh, with Titus and Lane. So, you know, there were, were pockets of, of opportunities there, and we were able to gain, you know, three or four yards of carry or four yards of pop, whatever it was, and try to put ourselves in, you know, more manageable situations. So I think the biggest thing from a team perspective is just doing things at a more consistent level, you know, play after play after play and not necessarily kind of one play here, one play there. And, you know, if we're able to do that, then we'll give ourselves a better chance. Nick, Titus Howard is an inspiration for this question, but I think about a lot of this when it comes to draft time too because there are times when you watch a player in college and you go, eh, he's not a center, he's a guard. Or he's not an outside linebacker, he's an inside linebacker, or he's this. When you have a guy like like Titus who has the capability of playing guard, but he's played a lot of tackle in college, how difficult is that for you and your staff to kind of look at a guy and go, well, we think he's this, versus, you know, he's really comfortable playing the other position, but we really think he's – how do you kind of go through all of that, and how does Titus kind of get 
caught in the cross-section of that in some no, sense. No, it's an interesting thought, and I think what you'll find is each team has a different philosophy on that. I think you have some teams will say, okay, if a guy's not this tall, this arm length, yeah. he's automatically going to play here. And I think what you have to do, you have to keep an open mind. I think what you have to be careful of is, you know, a player that well, – let's use Rashawn Slater as an example. So, yep. Yep. you know, played left tackle in Northwestern, was 6'3", six, 6'4", six, and change, whatever he was. So I think the, the inclination is, okay, that, that player's automatically going to move inside and play guard. Well, okay, when you move from tackle to guard and there's really no evidence of that, like is that the best decision, is that the right decision? So certain players can handle that move better than others. Yep. I would say – Philosophically, if a tackle's a tackle, leave him a tackle until he can't play tackle, which I think Slater, I mean, arguably has been one of the best yeah. offensive tackles in the league. You know, and there was a discussion about is he a tackle, is he a guard? We went through this with Logan Mankins in New England. You know, he played left tackle um, at Fresno State. And then from day one, we moved him inside and he played guard. And he had a 10, 12 year career as one of the better guards in the league. So some players are able to handle the adaptation, the adjustment, moving from one position to the other. I think with the inside positions, there's probably a little bit more flexibility because other than putting a hand on it, center has to be able to put their hand, their ball, uh, their hand on the ball. Right. Like you have mm-hmm. to be able to snap the ball. So if a player can't do that and handle all the communication and everything that goes along with it, then maybe he's a guard only. So I, I think you have to be careful of, okay, this guy is this certain size. He can only play this right. position. I would say philosophically that's not something that we're going to do moving forward, but every team has a different belief on that. As it pertains to Titus, so Titus played uh, played more right tackle than he did um, at Alabama State, if I remember correctly. Yep. Um, you know, got a few snaps at left tackle at the Senior Bowl, um, and then when he started his career here, I think they tried him inside at guard and then moved him back out there at tackle. And I think when we started the season, you know, with the team, our philosophy is always we're going to put the best people out there regardless of who they are. So when we started the year, we felt our best five included Cannon at right tackle, Howard inside at right mm-hmm. guard, and then the left side with the LT, and then, you know, Max at the time or whomever yeah. was our left left uh, left guard. So uh, I'd say from a mental standpoint, you know, a lot of the information is similar. It's yep. just sort of recalibrating just placement, footwork, hand, those types of things and techniques. And I'd say to Titus's credit, Titus is a smart kid. He's, he's a smart kid. He works hard. Yep. And then he practiced – he's practiced at tackle throughout the course of the year. So it wasn't like, okay, he played guard all of a sudden and, you know, it was the first time he went out there and played tackle. So um, he went out there and handled himself fairly well, you know, against good edge players. So, you know, we'll see what the assignment is this week and, you know, where we end up going. If there's a good chance that he's going to play left tackle again, there's going to be a different set of rushers, a different set of defenders that we're going to have across from him. So we'll see how it goes. It's interesting with what you just said because everybody from the outside looking in – they look at the starting five up front, but depth is always tested, it seems. Like, if, if it's not, then great. That's a luxury problem to have, right? But you're always looking for the next guy to come up, the understudy. Jimmy Morrissey playing center for you right now. You talked about communication. You have to be ready for all that stuff. Absolutely. You look at most teams. Most teams are going to carry anywhere from 8 to 10 offensive linemen on their roster. So you're going to have probably four tackles and then four or five inside players. Now, you might also have some of your depth off the roster on the practice squad. And those players at some point, so anywhere, you're probably going to have 10 to 12 offensive linemen on your team. So when you go to the game, forget about the eighth lineman rule for the time being. You know, you can take eight linemen now and it gives you an extra body, but you'd usually take another guy. So if something happens to one of your tackles, who's the next tackle? And then if something happens on the inside, who's the next inside player? Okay, if something happens at center, is that next player that comes in the game, does he go to center or do you take the right or left guard, move him to center and take the, the other the seventh lineman and put him at guard? So, And you have to practice all those different scenarios mm-hmm. and some players can handle that better than others. Some players are center only. Some players are guard only. Some players can play three positions. I would say 
going back to our time in New England, that Dan Conley is a good example of a player who played left tackle at Southeast Missouri State with 6'3", 310 pounds, wasn't drafted, was on the practice squad for out of three or four years. He was on a practice squad in Jacksonville. We brought him to New England, put him on the practice squad, and he ended up starting at all three inside positions at some point, you know, because of the circumstance. So can every player do that? Not necessarily, but there's a certain mental aptitude that has to go along with playing those spots. And then you have to f- have the physical attributes as well to be able to play those, those all three positions. Not all inside players can play all three positions. Some can. I would say David Andrews, center only. Jimmy Morrissey, probably a center only. Justin Britt, he's played anywhere from tackle to guard to center over the mm-hmm. course of his career, started the season here with us at center. So Really, you just have to look at the player, understand his strengths, understand his weaknesses, what can he handle mentally. And really, some players, like we just mentioned earlier, can handle the the, uh, the versatility of moving back and forth better than others. Dan Conley, kickoff returner, too. So, <laughs> so right. that, Sunday throw that Night Football, the 82 yard or 81 yard or whatever it was. Well, as they would say, one of the greatest big man moments in the mm-hmm. history of the NFL at that point. Nick, you mentioned the practice squad. You talk about Dan Conley, and then it hit me. And when Dan was on your practice squad, the practice squad was, what, eight to ten players? Something like that. And now it's, I think, what, 16? 16, yes. It feels like, just with the practice squad, that the 16 guys can all maybe have a different mission. Maybe there are a couple of them that you're like, hey, man, we want to get this guy up to speed so we can eventually bring him up to the 53. This guy, we feel like we need to work with. We like what we see. He's not ready, but if we work with him for a while, bring him back next year, he's got an opportunity to get on the 53-man roster. It feels like the practice squad has got a lot of different applications, if you will, and different kind of missions for the guys on there. Is that a, is that a decent way of looking at it? Is That's that fair. You look I think it? the big thing, philosophically, what's your mindset when it comes to the practice squad? Some teams say, okay, our practice squad is our practice squad, and these are players that are just going to be here to help us practice. Yeah. And when you look at the roster construction, you have to figure out how do we get these players, A, on the roster, B, in the building. So there's a multitude of ways to do that. So – if you want to carry depth on the roster, you carry it on the roster. If you can get the player to the 53-man roster, then so be it. It's, you have a little bit more flexibility. I think what you've seen over the last couple of years, the number of veteran players yeah. who have six, seven, eight years of experience who they're not on a roster, they have an opportunity to go to a practice squad, and then ultimately they have a chance to get elevated at least for two games. So it just gives you more flexibility. So you have to be, really be more open-minded, and really you have to make sure those practice squad players, and I think Vrabel said this you know, a couple times, you know, last week or leading up to our game, the philosophy is each Wednesday, like that player, whoever you are, has to have an understanding. He has an opportunity to play on Sunday. I mean, Jonathan Owens, you know, on a practice squad, you know, practice all week. At the end of the week, you know, we made a change, so then he was going to be active for the game. So you have to approach it as if you're going to play. So you're in every meeting, you're at every practice. If you have the right mindset and approach to prepare yourself accordingly, if you get to the end of the week and have to make a change, yeah. then you're prepared. If you just say, oh, I'm on a practice squad, I'm not going to play, and all of a sudden something happens on Saturday and you're not prepared, well, I'd say you're putting the team at a disadvantage, and, you know, that's not anywhere that we want to be. You like these rules better than it was 10 years ago, though, don't you? I mean, because now you have over 70 guys. You talk about IR, the flexibility of IR, and everything leading into that. Yeah, you really have to think it through. You have to have a lot of dialogue, and you just have to take the information. And I think the one thing I think that we all have learned being in the NFL, things are very fluid. So Mm. things happen quickly. So you just have to be ready to think, adjust, adapt, assess the information, make a decision, and just move forward. Like, we can't be, you know, all upset if we lose a guy, this guy gets hurt, we don't have this guy. Okay, it's about fixing problems, finding mm-hmm. solutions. So what's the solution? Here's our next options. I'd say we're, we're having these discussions here 
this week. We had some things that came up during the game, which every team does. So, all right, what are we going to do about it? Let's talk about it early in the week. Let's practice this way. So when we get the end of the week, then we can make the transition and be prepared to play on Sunday. All right, Nick. Hard Knocks is in Indy. Would you have – no, don't answer a question. Um, it is Indy this no. week. You played him in week six. <laughs> that It doesn't feel like a long time ago, but in football land, that's seven weeks. That's a long time. Last year we played the Colts. We played them in week 13, week 15, or 14, 16, whatever. It was like two weeks apart. There was no difference. Do you gain anything by having played them once? Like when you face a division team twice in a year, that's second game. <clears throat> I don't think it changes the preparation, or does it? How do you look at the second game you play of a divisional play? It depends on the team. timing. We'll, we'll talk about any specific because if you look at Jackson, we played them week one, then you're right, playing week right. 17. It's like playing two different right, teams. Right, right. So in Indy's case, so they're 5-2 and two since we played them last say they're playing probably arguably as good as any team in the league. So they've won on the road. They've basically been in every game, been competitive in any game, even the game on Sunday. I mean, it came down to the last possession. They scored. Tampa scores at 24 seconds left, and Rodgers almost returns a kickoff return for a touchdown, and they have one play at the shot of the end zone. So, But they're playing really well. Uh, when you look at their team, they lead the league in turnover margins. So they forced the most, mm-hmm. most turnovers in the league. They forced 27 turnovers, and their turnover margin, they're, they're first in the league, so they don't turn it over offensively, which is a credit to Carson. I think he's like four or five interceptions, but his touchdown-interception ratio is very low. So they turn you over on defense. They don't turn the ball over offensively. They have one of the best running games in the league. They have one of, one of the best players. You know, I think uh, Jonathan Taylor leads the league in scrimmage yards. Yep. They, they're first in the league in yards on first down. They average over six yards on first down. So they're good on first down. They're a good running team. They don't turn the ball over. And then defensively, they turn the ball over, and they make you drive the football. And they, you know, so they present some challenges. And I think they're uh, in the top five in offensive drive start. So their kickoff return unit puts them in a position. So they, they pose a lot of challenges. They're playing well offensively. They're playing well defensively. And they have a really good, solid core group of players in a kicking game. And, and Bubba does a good job. And Badgley's come in and kind of solidify the kicking situation, you know, when they had some ups and downs here, you know, with Rodrigo and some other guys going on off. But so they pose a lot of challenges. Like, you know, we're, we're going to have to play well. We're going to have to play better than we did week six in Indy. Um, you know, otherwise it will be the same result. Well, you had a very close game going there at the half. It was 10 to three. You were hanging in there with them. And I know the pick led to another score and it kind of snowballed from there. But what does that do for you to know that, hey, we can play with them. We just have to get over the hump here. Yeah, it comes down to execution. So we actually offensively moved the ball at different points. You know, we were able to complete some passes. I mean, Davis played well in the game. We were able to play decent on third down. Unfortunately, you know, where we came up short, we gave up multiple big plays. I mean, they ran 48 plays, and they scored 31 points. So they had multiple big plays. They had the big play run to Taylor's. You know, I mean, he ran for they ran for 175 yards. So it was – a small window, but again, it goes like what we talked about earlier. There were six or eight plays in that game that ultimately determined the outcome. So, you know, can we play better? Absolutely. Do we play decent at times in that game? Yeah, but nobody really cares and doesn't really matter. It's going to come down to our execution on Sunday and how well we play, you know, collectively as a team. The old saying is that statistics are for geeks, losers, and fantasy players. And but draft kings. Yeah. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> the, you mentioned something about you mentioned all those different numbers and they were all kind of as you hit me like whoa what's what's the most important one that you want to see first of all when you say okay we've got the Colts this week and you kind of sit down and you look at the numbers what's the first one you look at is turnover margin a big one what's the first one you look at yeah I would say turnovers in a running game so when you look at those three particular areas so 
again, they forced 27 turnovers. So offense, taking care of the ball offensively is, is paramount. It's absolutely important. And when you look at Leonard, I would say, as good as any player in the league at knocking the ball off of whomever it is. Yeah. He did in our game. So yep. I think he's forced five or six fumbles, puts a lot of pressure on the ball. So we have to take care of the football. And then defensively, Houston Texans defense, we have to handle the running game. They have one of the best running games in the league. So stopping a run or – making them have a lot of runs and not giving up the big runs and taking care of the ball offensively and then creating enough, um, I would say, production on first down. Like, first down production will be important because, like we talked about, they lead the league in first down production. So defensively, we got to take care of first down. we got to stop the run offensively. got to be good on first down, and we have to take care of the ball offensively. How hard is it to evaluate some of the rookie playmakers like Brevin Jordan, Nico Collins, uh I don't want to get into the guys on defense, but let's start with those two. Uh, with the reps they've gotten so far and what you're seeing here as you get into year two with those players and then assess how you want to deal with the roster in the offseason. I know you're not thinking about those two things necessarily at the same time, but what can you tell us about that, Nick? With any young player, you look at the totality of where do they start, okay, where are they currently, understanding if they have probably as long a runway as anybody in front of them. So specific to those two players, and I would even include Davis as well, from where they started to where they are now, mm. they've all made improvements. They've all made progress. I'd say they're in better condition. They've actually gotten stronger, so you're able to see their strength, their explosiveness, their power, the things that they're doing in the weight room have actually all improved. Their practice performance has been better and more consistent, and that's translated over into some cases into tangible production on Sunday. So what you're really looking for in any young player, I would say mo not just young players, but young players specifically, is improvement, their level of improvement, and over the course of however many weeks and however many months. Some make it quicker than others. Some maybe it takes a year. And maybe you see more improvement in the second year as opposed to, uh, you know, in the first year. But and those particular players, they've made progress. They've taken advantage of their opportunities that they've been given at different points, and including, I know you, you mentioned not just offensively for now, but when you look at Lopez, he's made a lot of improvements from where he started to you know where he is now. Mm -hmm. And same thing at Wallow in the kicking game. I mean, I think in the early on in the year, Garrett you know, was just okay in a kicking game, but he's worked, he's made some progress. So really that's what you want to see with young players and you want to see as your team is just improvement from where they start to where they are now. And you want to continue that arc of improvement all the way through the duration of the end of the year. Like, really, if we continually focus on improvement, the results will take care of itself. Yeah. We can't get too caught up in that, but you want to see your team make progress and see tangible improvements. And certainly some players have done that more so than others. Nick, as we start thinking about the next rookie class, you got Senior Bowl coming up, Shrine Bowl, NFLPA. We probably talked about this a little bit, but as we approach those, Obviously, invites are going out. Jim's doing a heck of a job at the senior bowl. All those guys. Sure Dave's is. doing, He's doing a great job. I'm just putting it out there like, these guys are coming. This is going to be cool. And so I know it feels like there's much more emphasis put on it than maybe it ever has been. Has that changed for you guys? Is the emphasis more or less from what it's been in evaluating those all-star game situations? Yeah, I think it more is made of it externally. So yeah. really, like, we, we're in a good spot as a staff. So we've spent August to this point. Yeah. You know, we're essentially all the, the road scouts are off the road. I mean, there's a few college games that are left. You have the, the conference championship yep. games this weekend. But we have, a, 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 I'd say, a voluminous amount of information that's come into our database and that's come to me specifically I've probably seen more players and studied more players this year than I have at any point. So a lot of that is just in preparation for the offseason in conjunction with what we're doing on a week-to-week -week basis, preparing for our opponent on our team. So 
I'd say externally a lot more is made of it. It's not about one draft. It's not about one player. It's not about one specific position. Really, it's about understanding the players, understanding who's going to be available. We haven't even had the the declarations of the underclassmen yet, so that's a whole separate pool of players that we're going to find out in mid-January, mid-February, you know, end of January. So the most important thing for us is to go through our process, take the information. You know, we're going to have our first set of draft meetings here coming up in a couple weeks, so Mm -hmm. kind of start the initial discussions. And those are more of what else do we need to know? You know, okay, this player maybe has a few more question marks than this right. player. This player is clean as a whistle. All right, let's put him over here. Let's just make sure we're going to the evaluation. What do we need to figure out between now and April on this other subset of players? So that's where we we'll allocate our time and resources. So we'll have plenty of time to get ready for the draft. But I would say just for, from a calendar standpoint, we're in a pretty good spot, and I wouldn't put too much emphasis on the senior bowl or yep. just one particular event. I'll bring the coffee and the donuts to the draft meeting, Nick. I'll just sit in the back. You won't even notice me. Won't even. We're notice. actually going to have to zoom them just because of the, the, oh, the protocols, but that's okay. Well, uh, if you can help me do my homework here, we have Rex Burkhead on the player show. Mm-hmm. And if you can give me a Rex Burkhead thought or story, I know you're familiar with him from two organizations, so you let me know if you can. Yeah, I'll give you a couple things. Uh, Rex has been – he's an incredible teammate and – as selfless a player as that I've been around. And it's interesting when you go back. So Rex was a pre- pretty good player in Nebraska. So, mm-hmm. and he, you guys can probably bust his chops about that. But I think when he came out, he ran like four, seven, one or four, seven, he, he didn't run a, 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 right. a good time. And then when we got him in new England, you know, now he hadn't played very much in Cincinnati. He played very minimally offensively, but had a role in the kicking game. But we had earmarked him kind of as a backup kicking game player with some role offensively, and that's essentially what he was. But when he got there, you're watching this guy move around and run and work out and going, wait a minute, like this guy's faster than 4-7. So I'd say this is a good example of a player, time speed and game speed. Like when you watch Rex play, you don't sit there and go, he's slow. Yeah. I mean, maybe some people do, but I certainly don't. So, but – he made immeasurable contributions to our locker room. One of the best teammates we have is selfless, did whatever he has to do, and he practices as hard as any player that we have on our team here currently. Like, you know, we have all the, the GPS and the data, and his loads and his measurements are as high as any player on the team on a week-to-week basis. It shows his effort, his attitude, the way he works, and the way he prepares. And, you know, he, he's gone out there, and he's made some plays to help us, you know, to help us win. And he has a very charitable – um, part of his, you know, his don't his foundation is a very St. Jack's, you know, kids or whatever. I don't know the exact name of it, but that's it means a lot to him, and he mm-hmm. cares a lot about that, and it kind of speaks to who he is as a person. It's interesting because he was in high school. They thought he was going to be a linebacker, and I look at him and think, well, he could have been a good linebacker in Nebraska and been a good linebacker throughout his career, which goes back kind of to the question of forecasting. I know that one's a lot harder when you look at a guy and think, wait a second, he's a running back here, but eh, Maybe he could play. Maybe he could go to the other side of the ball, play defense, play linebacker. I know that one's tough, no, but it's it's a lot of this is what is the player's mindset and yeah. his. Well, I'm saying if there's certain players, if you ask them, hey, we're gonna actually have you do this because again, a running back playing in a kicking game, he might as well be a linebacker. Right. So if you were to just mm-hmm. take the position off, when you look at the roles, personal protector on a punt team, slot on a punt mm-hmm. team, playing on kickoff coverage. Right, running back, linebacker, like it might as well be yeah, the same. Ab- so it comes back down to a mindset. And we've had, I would say, my experience and our experience, this is really more of a credit to Bill and his vision that we were, when we were in New England, we took Troy Brown, who was yeah. our best offensive player, slot receiver, and played him at slot corner for a period of time. And then we did the same thing, I want to say it was in 2011 with Julian. So Julian, first of all, didn't play 
he never played receiver in the, you know, like in college. He was a, a, an athletic quarterback. Mm-hmm. Transitioned to play receiver, punt returner, and then this is how many years is that? It was like three, four years into his career, however many years it was. In the AFC Championship game, he's playing slot corner against the Baltimore Ravens in the most critical situations. So does it mean like he's a slot corner? No, <laughs> but it was, well, our team was decimated. We didn't have anybody available. Yeah. And he was willing to accept the challenge of going back to what kind of what you're talking about with Burkhead. Like if you were to go to that player, they were willing to accept the challenge of, you know what, whatever I need to do to help the team, I'm going to go play slot corner. And he actually ended up breaking up a pass on Bolden and like on second or third down when, and when they had the ball in a red area. So this all goes back to mindset and the attitude of the player, which I think part of our responsibility is to bring as many players in the building that have that type of mindset and whatever position they play, whether it's guard to tackle, yeah. whether it's running back to linebacker, whether it's running back in the kicking game, then we'll kind of have to put that all together and then put the team out there. So how much of that valuation of that dude's a football player comes into it? I mean, I know it sounds kind of hokey, but how much does that sort of come into it? Like, this dude's a gamer. You hear that all the time. He's a gamer. He's a football player. Does that, come, does that factor in? Yeah, I would say just if you're asking the Houston Texans organization, our philosophy, like what we care, I care more about it, is a guy a good football player or not. Like yeah. we can get in all the measurables and how tall he is and yeah, how yeah. long his arms are and all that, but is a guy a good football player or not? Okay, we'll figure out what to do with him and put him in the best position to maximize his ability, and then you look at some of the other attributes that go along with it. But to your question, John, I would say if a guy's a football player, he's a football player, and we'll figure out what to do with him. I absolutely loved that answer from Nick Casario. All right, we get back. Let's get a little in the lab with Drew and myself next, right here on Texas All Access. All Access. All Access. All Access. Welcome back to this Wednesday edition of Texans All Access from the Hyundai Texans Radio Studio. I am John Harris, your host, football analyst, sideline reporter, and one half of the in the lab duo of Drew Doherty and John Harris, so I'm glad to be with you. And speaking of in the lab, Drew and I went in the lab for this week's podcast. We talked about the goals for this football team for the remainder of the season, the last six games, but we started off on a little bit of an LSU tangent because Drew mentioned Leonard Fournette, and, well, that got us thinking about LSU playing potentially in the Texas Bowl. Drew, let's go. If you've never been to NRG Stadium, when LSU plays here and yeah. or when Mexico plays a soccer game here, <laughs> change what you're doing and trust. Just come if you can. It's awesome. It's a different place when those two teams are here. It's, a, it's an awesome environment, very cool environment. I love it when the Tigers are here. I went to SMU. I don't have a dog in this fight. Yeah. yeah. I love when LSU plays in this building, please come back if you can, Tigers. Man, we love having you here. If the Mexican national soccer team could play against the LSU football team in some way, shape, or form in some game, the hinges NRG, would come off. Oh, it would, it would, they, they would have to take the top off and put additional seats. And, and those two fan bases would buy additional seats. Hey, we're going to have to put you in the ninth level. Yeah. Where's that? Well, we've pulled the roof back and we've put a ninth level on top of this. Fine. I'm in. Mm-hmm. Um, but you're right. And, and LSU was the one that when LSU beat AM, and uh, which the way the game was going should not have happened at the end. But, you know, bad a bad scheme call gets you a bad position and LSU got to win it. Good for them. It won't be at Orgeron in the game, but LSU always delivers. And look, on the other side, it could be Iowa State. It could be Kansas State. You have a lot of purple. 
And those two fan bases, Iowa State, Iowa State has not been in this game. Well, I can't remember if they've, they've not been in the Texas Bowl as it's designed now. I don't, I don't think ever. But Iowa State, Kansas State, both those fan bases will travel. And I would imagine no matter how the season's going, they're going to travel and be there and so LSU. So I'm hoping for two of those teams to match up in that bowl game. And uh, that would be that would be pretty, pretty darn fun for sure. Yeah, I love love when LSU comes to town. They do this thing after a kickoff, excuse me, after a touchdown when they're about to kick off and they play the Garth Brooks song, Colin Baton Rouge, and they've got their video. And it's, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's a chill. It's a cool moment, man. Like the whole town, well, whole, whole, whole stadium sings along. And there was a, a guy on the kickoff coverage team, you know, he was standing like pretending to, <laughs> you know, conduct the music. It was, it was awesome. The times that they've done it here. So anyhow, yeah. let's talk a little bit about goals for the final six games for the first time since 2005, 2006, the Texans will have consecutive losing seasons. Rewind that. Think about that. Consecutive losing, back-to-back losing seasons. Now, it's, it's been ugly this year. It was ugly last year. But there's been a little a section of, of folks that think, wow, they're always losers, you know, that fret. And, yeah, they've never won the Super Bowl, but they're not always losers. They've been to the playoffs quite a bit over the last decade. Now, those, those days are in the rearview mirror right now. But for the first time since the second Bush administration, the Texans have consecutive losing seasons. That's weird. So what's re- what's left for this year? What do you want to accomplish? What do you want to do? Mm. You and I are going to discuss that. My main goal okay. is to see what you got out of the guys like Jimmy Morrissey, Nico Collins, Brevin Jordan, not in any particular order, Brevin Jordan, right. um, Jonathan Grenard, keep that going, Roy Lopez, the young guys who – are under contract who are going to be around next year. And Morrissey's not under contract, but he's exclusive rights, and you kind of can control where he goes. Yep. But guys who are certainly going to be back next year who have promise and shown promise, and let's let's let them get some reps and see what they got and continue to learn, continue to build, continue to get better so they can be building blocks for the future around here. Because I've been, with each of those cases, I've been very, very happy with some stuff that I've seen. I want to see more, obviously, because they're still – in the early stages of their career, but it's very promising with that crew and you need another great draft to add to it. You know, yep. you need to keep layering on these young players that, uh, that can come on in here and, and make big contributions, you know, and I think last year and, and the year before you didn't get to see too much from your rookies uh, by and large, that wasn't the case this year. You've seen a lot from your rookie draft class. You've seen a lot from, you know, guys like Morrissey who came in as an undrafted free agent, um, who had been with another team, not an undrafted free agent. He was a seventh rounder with, with the right. Las Vegas Raiders, but he wasn't a part of your team at the start of the season. Let's, let's keep that going. Cause you got to layer on the talent that you can control contract wise for the next few years. And I want to see more of these young guys. What about you? What's, what's, what's your goal? I'm with you. Or, obviously, what are your goals? Yeah. I mean, obviously the young guys uh, is, I, I think first and foremost is understanding you know, these, these guys are going to have to be the foundation of your squad going forward. You're going to get some help in the next draft, next couple of drafts, a couple of free agent cycles and all that. But these guys, you, know, you mentioned them, Nico Brevin, uh, even Gare Wallow. Uh, yeah. Roy Lopez has already established himself as one of those guys, but seeing those guys get opportunities. And I think when it, when it comes to opportunity for me at the end of the year, I always think about Arian Foster 
And Arian, as a rookie in 2009, had been around. He was here. He had been in the building. Now, he'd had one mishap or uh, something happened. But either way, he was was practice squad until until the last last few weeks. And then finally, he gets the opportunity to start against the Dolphins. And bada boom, bada bang, 100-plus yards. And you're like, well, that was fun. And then does it in the final week against the Patriots. And I think – if and we do this a lot, we redraft drafts, and I don't know that we've gone or gone back and redrafted 2000, 2010, because I think in the first round the Texans did get it right with Kareem. I think where they got it wrong was not moving him to safety earlier, but that's a discussion for a different day. Yeah. But the next pick was Ben Tate, and part of the reason you took Ben Tate was because I don't think you you found out what you had with Arian Foster early enough. If you had seen Arian for five six games and realized hey, wait a second, we think he can be the number one back. Well, then maybe in 2010, in that second round, maybe you take a different approach. Maybe you don't have to take a running back as high. Maybe you go a different position, and the defense and going into 2010 needed every single ounce of help it could get. So maybe you draft a defensive player in the second round there, and you get a running back a little bit later to go with Arian. Now, look, I don't want to take away from what Ben Tate did, but the philosophy could have changed if you could have seen Arian. Now, look, I, I mean, I understand – you know, how things are and, and, you know, timing doesn't always match up the way you want it to, but, uh, and in a year also in 2009, where you still had an opportunity to get to the playoffs, it wasn't about you're going to, you're, you know, you're in the position Texans were, I mean, at this point, two and two and nine, we are in 2009. What were we? I mean, we this weren't, five weren't and two and you're, so that, that was an interesting five year. and six. You start, you start the season, you go into your buy at five and three, come out of your bye Texans lost four straight to go to five and seven yeah. and they won their final four to go to nine right. and seven to finish the year. So it was a weird, they were on the, the verge of just like really veering off and getting, right. getting ugly, but they ride the brought ship it back. And, yeah. And, and so maybe that changes the, so I, as, as much as you can get guys that you believe in, that you believe can be in this foundation, to get them reps at what you believe they'll do in the future is massively important. And I'll bring up this one as well. I think as much as you possibly can, figuring out what the offensive line is going to look like. And, and I'm not saying that you're going to have all five starters in the building for 2022 and beyond, but to know this guy's a part of our offensive line future this guy might not be. This guy it's, definitely. It's been is a new. Not, it's been a new bag is. every single week. That's a right. valid point you're making. You want to find out, you know, which of the five are going to roll together, right? Especially, you know, which ones are you wanting to keep? Which ones are you going to say, right. okay, thank you very much. We'll see you next time. Because yeah, you're right. It, it's it's been a mixture. It's been very reminiscent of what we saw in 17 and and 18. Right. You know, just lots of mixing and matching and and you know not as effective as you like in, right. in terms of what you want run protection. And I know, run, I know injuries wise. I know injuries have played a part with, with Justin Britt and Larry Tunsil. I, yeah. I understand that, but I don't know if we'll get an extended look at Titus Howard at left tackle. Um, and if he looks good, I saw Titus in the hallway the other day, I was just walking down the hall and he kind of happened to be coming out of the locker room. We come out of the room at the same time and we kind of dapped each other up. And I said, so I just said, so like riding a bike, and he said, that's my highest grade all year. <laughs> and, and that was it. That was just, that was all. And I just said, 
well, there you go. And I walked yeah. away and didn't have to say much. And sometimes that's all I kind of say to the guys is, is just that. And I, I think it just goes to show that sometimes the guys, you know, comfort shows that, you know, a guy being comfortable and look, I, I'm not going to sit here and say that Titus wouldn't have a future at guard, but maybe his future is at tackle. Maybe, maybe it's at left tackle. And, and, but you know, who knows? There's been a lot of talk about, about what happens at that particular position, whether Laramie is going to be a long-term guy or not, or whether Titus can be that guy or not. I don't, I don't know, but I want to get settled on it. I want to get settled on it. So we know we go into the draft in 20, uh, 2022. And look, not all these guys that I'm about to say are going to end up coming out in the draft. They might, but you have Iki Aquanu from NC state. You got uh, Kenyon green from Texas A&M. You got Tyler Lindenbaum, the center from Iowa. Uh, you got Charles Cross, the offensive tackle from Mississippi State. A couple of those guys can play a couple of different positions. A couple of those guys are set in one position. The thing about them is all those guys I mentioned, Trevor Penning, the offensive tackle from Northern Iowa, is as good an athlete as anybody at the offensive line position. The offensive line is, is if everybody comes out as we would expect, the offensive line is jacked in this draft. And I know you don't want to go out there and rely on a bunch of rookies, but I know that the Indianapolis Colts drafted two rookies in 2018, one six pick overall and one with the, the second round pick. And those two guys have started nearly every game for the Colts when they've been healthy in Quentin Nelson and Braden Smith. And they've been the cornerstones. 40% of, the, of that offensive line from the day they were drafted in 2018 and set the tone for that team. Yeah, Nelson's think, been one of the best players in the NFL. Yeah, Not just offensive of line, but best players. Yeah, yeah. yeah regardless of position. Uh, or as some people would like to say, irregardless. But no, it's regardless Tony of Soprano position. Tony Soprano would say that, yes. Yeah, irregardless. Um, then give me some gabagool, too. That said, get that offensive line set. Because on the other side of the ball, there might be some some in, in and out parts on the defensive line. But I think we're seeing with the defensive line, Drew, I think we're seeing – the the makings and and the the construction of what can be a very good defensive line in the future but figuring out what that offensive line has got to be and what you want its identity to be i think is is in invaluable to this team and so you've got six more games to figure out all right what do we got with jimmy morrison what do we got with justin Britt? what do we got with uh, Justin McCray, what do we like about Titus? How about Charlie Heck? These are six games that are a big evaluation of Charlie Heck. He started mm -hmm. for a few. What What's it look like? How does it go? And really get to a point where you can feel confident of this is how we feel about this line. We feel these guys are starters. We feel these guys are backups. We feel these are our holes. And we're going to go attack them in free agency and then also in the draft. Good stuff. Let's see what the young guys can do and let's see if you can get some continuity and cohesion and chemistry and concreteness. If concreteness didn't exist as a word, it does now signed Drew Doherty. All right, we got to hit that injury report I talked about a little bit earlier. We'll do that next right here on Texas All Access. On Texas All Access. On Texas. I don't know what you all have planned for dinner, but I've got an idea for you. How about a trip to Freddy's Frozen Custard and Steak Burgers? Oh, I'm telling you, you will not be disappointed. In fact, if it's your first time, it won't be your last time. I can promise you that. Freddy's Frozen Custard and Steak Burgers is all about the good and creating more of it. More drive through celebrations, more road trips around the block, more family dinners and lunches, more car picnics and desserts, maybe even more second desserts, more being together as much as we can. With 17 area locations in the Houston area, 
Freddy's keeps the good going with the taste that brings you back. Freddy's frozen custard and steak burgers. I'm telling you, my mouth is watering thinking about that double steak burger. Ugh. Cheese curds, mini turtle concrete. Man, I'm hungry. Well, I'm also, well, I'm John, if I didn't say that earlier. And I've also got the injury report for you. Now, I said it earlier in the show, and Coach Cully talked about it during his presser today. There was no practice today due to sickness that was, uh, that had hit the team. That is not COVID-related. Nobody tested positive for COVID. But they wanted to just be sure. They're at that point now, week 13, where, you know what? Day off of practice isn't going to kill them. they got to prepare more mentally anyways. But the injury report, if the Texans did practice, again, this is an approximation, but they would have had a number of DNPs, including Danny Amendola with a knee issue, Terrence Brooks, Chris Conley, Brandon Cooks. David Johnson, Justin McCray, Cole Toner, Demarcus Walker. One, two, three, four, four of those guys with illness. J- Jonathan Grenard and Jacob Martin would have been limited participants. The Colts did practice, and they have got three huge players dealing with knee issues. The DMPs for Wednesday. Forrest Buckner, defense tackle, Jack Doyle, tight end, Ryan Kelly, all dealing with knee issues. Darius Leonard still dealing with that ankle issue. has been a problem for him all year. Quentin Nelson dealing with an ankle. And Andrew Sandejo, the Rice product. That's two weeks in a row seeing a guy from Rice at Energy Stadium. Andrew Sandejo dealing with a calf. Those guys were all DMPs. Now, just reading further on the DeForest Buckner situation, there's a fairly high probability that Buckner will not play on Sunday. He has been dealing with that knee. It's been a problem. Now he's got a foot on top of it. They've got a bye week next week. He doesn't play this week. He gets another bye. So it's basically three weeks before he would play again. And he would have only missed one game uh, in that process. So there's a thought that Buckner may not play dealing with that knee and the foot. Now, I don't want to see anybody hurt. I've said this a million times. But if there, if there are two players that I do not want to see from the Colts, one is Buckner, the other is Quentin Nelson. Look, Jonathan Taylor, I mean, there's, I mean, he's not even he's not even showing on the list. He's not even showing on the on the injury report. So two H just rolling along. But the force Buckner dealing with that knee. Jack Doyle, Ryan Kelly, both dealing with knee issues. Darius Leonard, Quentin Nelson deal with those ankles that have been problems all year long. And Andrew Sandejo with the calf. We will keep eyes peeled. A limited participant was Eric Fisher. He's also dealing with the knee, but it appears that. He'll be okay. So we'll track that the rest of the week. Texans will get back to practice on Thursday. Hopefully this illness will work itself through the team. Not all the way through the team, but work itself through with the guys that are ill. And then get back and get ready for this game on Sunday against the Indianapolis Colts at NRG Stadium. Let's learn a little bit more about the Colts with our pal Matt Taylor, the voice of the Indianapolis Colts. It's men behind the mics next right here on Texans All Access. We got one hour down and one hour left to go right here on a Wednesday edition of Texans All Access. Got dark way too early, but man, this was a wonderful day to be here in our city of Houston. Glad you are with me. 
And we are going through this show, and it's time for our Men Behind the Mics. One of my favorite segments. I actually created this. Well, I, I, well I'll put it this way. I gave Mark a to-do list. And I said, I think this would be a really good segment. He said, okay. And he's run with it, and it's been great all these years. And in 2018, Matt Taylor took over as the voice of the Colts. Even before that, he was a silent reporter. So he and I would connect. Well, he's moved up the food chain, so to speak. And so now Matt connects with Mark through our men behind the mics. And that is right now. Joining us right now at Texans Radio, it's voice of the Indianapolis Colts, Matt Taylor with us. Matt, well, great to have you with us. And I know it wasn't a great uh, result for the Colts on Sunday. Tell me about the recent trend of the team since the Texans have played the Colts and it was 31-3 to Indy. Well, they've really been playing some good football here lately, and they're trying to pull off what the Texans pulled off a couple of years ago, right, where you start 0-3 and you make the playoffs. And, you know, they were 0-3, 1-4, but really since week four on, this is a much better, much more improved uh, Colts football team. You know, they're 6-3 in their last nine, and uh, unfortunately the – the narrative, uh, I think, across the NFL, and if there is a national narrative on the Colts, if they look at them, they say good football team, but still trying to solidify themselves and take that next step, right? Trying to beat the elite teams in the NFL, because unfortunately this season, the Colts have three losses on the year where they've led by at least 10 points to teams that are leading their respective divisions, right? They were up 19 points in the fourth quarter, couldn't close out Baltimore back in week number five. You're up 14 to nothing early on in the first quarter in a home game on Halloween against the Titans. They end up dropping that game, and then they're up 10 this last past Sunday on the defending Super Bowl champs in Tampa Bay, and the Colts couldn't close that game out, and they fell 38-31. to So, you know, the narrative on the Colts, unfortunately, is good football team, but just not ready to take that next step. And it's all about coulda, woulda, shoulda. I know you can't play that game, but if the Colts win those games, they're 9-3. and three, and They're probably the first team or the, you know, in first place in the AFC. But as we all know, you, know, you just can't do that. You, know, you are what your record says you are, and the Colts are 6-6, six and six, and their margin for error here in the last five games is razor thin as they try to make the playoffs and, again, pull off what the Texans did in 2018 go 0-3 to start the season and then play some football in January. Matt, it's really interesting to me how in a division that has Derrick Henry, now Henry Hurt, and Jonathan Taylor has taken over as not only the star running back in the division, but in the entire NFL. What about his performance this season? I mean, yeah, Colts fans, they're all rejoicing over this pick as the Colts traded up to get him in the second round in 2020. And we all knew he would be good. But, yeah, I mean, even the most optimistic Jonathan Taylor backer, I don't think they saw him being this good and this productive. I mean, as you said, he leads the NFL in rushing. He leads the NFL in scrimmage. uh, He leads the NFL in touchdowns, rushing touchdowns. I mean, just give him the ball. I mean, it sounds cliche and it sounds hyperbole, but he legitimately is a threat to score every time he has the ball. I mean, he has – the two biggest games this season in terms of an overall individual effort rushing the ball. He's accounted for two of the three longest rushes this season. Uh, He's got the sixth longest catch for a touchdown this year. Uh, I mean, he had that 83-yard run uh, against the Texans way back in week number six in that first meeting at Lucas Oil Stadium. He he really is an an, 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 an everything, uh, an all-purpose back, I should say. He's great at the blitz pickup. He can catch the ball out of the backfield. He's averaging about nine yards per catch this season when he's been targeted in the passing game. 
The Colts right now, Mark, they're, they're, they are a very heavy RPO team run pass option. And in a game like last Sunday, when it was hard to run the ball on the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, the Colts still got the ball to Taylor in the passing game. And it's almost more advantageous to get him the ball out in space as compared to, you know, giving him the ball in a sweep or an outside zone where the defense comes to him, getting the ball in space where he can make one cut on an outside linebacker and get 15 and 20 easy yards, you know, out in space on the perimeter. So uh, he is definitely the Colts' best playmaker, and he's in the conversation for MVP. He probably won't win it because that award always goes to a quarterback. But when you're talking about what MVP means to you, for me, it means, you know, where would this team be without this player if he wasn't on the team? The Colts right now certainly wouldn't be 6-3 and three in their last nine without Jonathan Taylor doing what he's doing. Matt Taylor, voice of the Colts, joining us. What about Carson Wentz? Also very important to their success lately. Yeah, he's taking care of the football. That, that's the biggest thing all season long. He only has five interceptions on the season, but a lot of those have asterisks, right, where I mean, a shovel pass got tipped. That was intercepted. He had a pick late in the game on a Hail Mary against Tampa Bay. So really he's been better than the numbers show in terms of you know, the risk versus the reward. He's taking the shots down the field. He's completing a high percentage of his deep balls. Michael Pittman Jr. has really re- uh, emerged for the Colts in that regard, and he and Carson Wentz have a great deal of trust, you know, throwing the ball down the field, and he's just being smart with it. And, you know, again, the Colts are 6-6, six and six, but quarterback play has not been the problem this season. If you peel back the onion and you want to make a list of, you know, the top ten reasons why the Colts just haven't been able to get over the hump this season – quarterback doesn't make that list he's been that good and that consistent and you know the the Colts and and Frank Reich have been proved right so far this year in their big gamble to go out and trade for him in the offseason when he had such a down year in 2020 with the Philadelphia Eagles well Matt we know how hard it was for the Texans to move the ball against the Colts last time around I know the Buccaneers had success last week but what about the defense overall in 2021 yeah defensively it's been kind of a mixed bag you know some weeks it's it's, you know, it's, it's really on point. And other weeks, you know, they struggle to get off the field. The saving grace, you know, sort of the life raft of this defense, Mark, has been takeaways. Teams have been able to move the ball against them. They've been able to put up points. But give the Colts credit, they have this knack, this ability that, hey, when our backs are truly against the wall and in crunch time, we got to make a play. That, that They lead the NFL in takeaways. Um, they have a takeaway now in 13 consecutive games dating back to last year. They lead the NFL in forced fumbles and fumble recoveries. Uh, Darius Leonard is so good at just, you know, again, he has this uncanny ability to strip you from the ball or step in front of a pass or get his hands on the ball. Uh, he's just he's really, really good at sort of being an instinctual player and stepping up when the Colts need a takeaway at the worst moments. That's when Darius Leonard sort of shines. But, no, I mean, overall, the numbers aren't going to blow you away, especially, Mark, in crunch time. The, the Colts, under Matt Eberflus since 2018, they've been a really good team on defense in the fourth quarter. But for whatever reason, this year, it's been everything but that. They've been outscored in the, in the fourth quarter this year by 42 points, which is 30th in the NFL in terms of fourth quarter margin. They've allowed 114 fourth-quarter points on the year, which is 30th in the NFL, and that's one of the measuring sticks for a good team is, is when, when the game's on the line and when you're in crunch time, can you make more plays than the other team? And just for whatever reason, this, this year the Colts' you know, fourth quarter has not been kind to them 
especially on defense. And again, that's a big reason why they haven't been able to close out these teams like, you know, Tampa Bay and Tennessee and Baltimore. If the Colts won those games, you know, they'd be singing a different tune right now. They'd be much better than where they are right now at 500 at six and six. Matt, last time these two teams hooked up, it was Davis Mills playing quarterback for the Texans. Now it's Tyrod Taylor. What are your thoughts on the Colts facing Taylor versus Mills in this particular matchup? Yeah, I think it's a, it's a, it's a much more even matchup. I, I respect the heck out of Tyrod Taylor. He's a really, really good quarterback. He's played, you know, seemingly a zillion games in this league for a lot of teams. He's bounced around a little bit. I mean, just a couple of years ago, he took a Buffalo team to the playoffs. And, uh, you know, he's a really smart quarterback. And I think he gives them a much more uh, competitive edge in this game, a much better shot to win a game like this. And I think it's a completely different type of offense with him at quarterback. No disrespect to the rookie, but, you know, you're just talking about a guy that's been in the league that's seen a lot more compared to a guy that's played in six games coming out of Stanford here in 2021. So, no, I think this is going to be a great game. And I think defensively, it's a much better matchup for the Colts because the Texans are playing much better uh, on defense as of late in these last three games, as you, as you've seen, Mark, I mean, they're giving up only about 17 points per game on defense in the last three coming into this contest. And just like the Colts, the Texans have been thriving on takeaways. Well, I think the numbers, and you can, you can clarify this more than me, but what's the number 11 takeaways in the last three games, Yep, a lot of interceptions. So, you know, that secondary has been playing good. You know, I'm really impressed with Grenard this season with his eight sacks and Grugier Hill. He's a really good linebacker. He's come on for him. He's got seven tackles for loss. So I think this is a much better matchup for the Colts on both sides of the ball in the second go around with the Texans. Matt, what about having hard knocks in the building? What's that like for you? You see them around. What do you think the players, their reaction to it, having those cameras around them all the time? Yeah, I think it's cool. And I think, you know, at the beginning of the season, when, you know, it, everything's so sensitive and you're used to just, you know, sort of like hunkering down in your own bunker, a bunker and it's you against the world. And now there's cameras and microphones in your face. I think it was really foreign to him at the beginning of the season. And, you know, it's sort of awkward and it, it took some getting used to. But now I think they are used to it. And I think it is sort of the new normal, at least for this year. And I, I've been really happy with the show. I think it's an entertaining show. And you know, I think the coolest thing, you know, from a Colts perspective and, you know, just as a fan, Mark, is that show, as you know, does such a good job of just telling stories and highlighting players and peeling back the onion and getting to know these guys on and off the field and what makes them tick and, you know, what they go home to, what life is like for them when they're not a football player, right? When Darius Leonard can just be a dad or, you know, Carson Wentz can just go home and be a husband and play with his kids and just – be normal people. That's my favorite part of the show. Mm. That plus, you know, the, the first episode was really, you know, sort of featurey, kind of off the field. And then the second episode was, you know, let's get inside the meeting rooms and sort of the, the, the good blend there of off the field and on the field. And I'm a football junkie just like you, Mark. So I want to go inside the meeting rooms and I want to see what, you know, Scotty Montgomery, the off the uh, the running backs coaches, is talking to, uh, to to Chris Ballard, the general manager, about how great Jonathan Taylor has been this season. I want to see those sort of like off-the-cuff, uh, you know, organic, in-the-moment type of conversations that they're documenting. And that's, that's the greatest part of the show is they're collecting all of this inventory, all of this content, and then they put the best, you know, scenes and the best moments in the show. 
and you don't know from a week-to-week basis what's going to be in the show. That's why it's a must-watch thing. And, uh, you know, for football fans, not just Colts fans, but football fans, you got to watch this show. And I love the fact that it's it's morphed into an in-season program outside of just in training camp because in-season, I mean, that's, that's, that's the moneymaker right there. I mean, mm-hmm. the wins and the losses during this season – is what's going to dictate success, you know, setting yourself up for what the, the next offseason is going to look like. So to get a, a behind-the-scenes look at what life is like, you know, Monday through Saturday leading into Sunday, I think is more interesting than what you see during training camp in the month of August. Matt Taylor, voice of the Colts, joining us. Matt, what about the Tennessee Titans? Your thoughts on their situation right now after losing a couple of games in a row, one to the Texans, actually, another to the Patriots. That's after their big streak in which they beat all those playoff teams. Where do you think they're headed? I still think they're headed in the right direction. I still believe in them. I think from a makeup standpoint and their culture under Mike Vrabel, I still think this team is probably destined to be you know, a top-two seed in the conference, I just, you know, at the beginning of the season, when you looked at their schedule and they started beating all these playoff teams from last year, you just kept waiting for things to unravel, right? I mean, Julio Jones is out and then Derrick Henry's out and you're, you're thinking to yourself, right, this is going to be the week. This is going to be the week where they sort of come back to earth and then they just keep knocking off playoff teams. And I know it's eventually happened to them to a degree. As you said, the Texans got them. They went on the road. They got thrashed by the Patriots, but the Patriots are playing some really good football right now. So they have been brought back to earth a little bit, but I think they have sustaining power, and I just like their culture. I like the way they play. Um, I think they get A.J. Brown back eventually. I know they've been banged up, and uh, every team has you know, the war of attrition on them here throughout the course of the season. You know, The Colts and Texans can certainly raise their hand and attest to that. But, no, I think they're built for success in the long term this season. I think they definitely make the playoffs. I think they win this division because the lead they have built up on the Colts is just too too big at this point. It's probably insurmountable for Indianapolis considering, you know, it's 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 three games right now, but really it's four if you throw in the tiebreaker with the Titans sweeping the season series with the Colts. But I like their chances once they get into January football because of just what their identity is. And they're great up front on both sides of the ball. And uh, I, I, I like them, actually, to make some noise in the month of January. Your level of surprise, if any, when Urban Meyer said, no, I'm committed to the Jaguars, I'm not interested in any of these college openings. Thoughts? No, not really. I mean, I don't think he takes this job uh, in Jacksonville. He's, he, he, to me, Mark, seems like he's on a mission to once again prove himself as one of the best coaches in football, whether that's, you know, high major college football or the NFL level. I don't think he takes this job if he doesn't uh, have, you know, his sole intense purposes on, you know, turning that brand around. And obviously I know he got in some hot water off the field with his actions early in the season away from his team. Uh, But I do think he's a good football coach. I think it's going to take some time. I'm actually a little bit more disappointed with the with the Jaguars than a lot of other people. I know they're having a bad season, but I actually thought they would be more competitive than they've showed this season. But I think they're going to turn it around. I'm not surprised that he's going to stay committed to Jacksonville because I think he wants to prove to people that he can do it at this level. Otherwise, I don't think he would have taken the job. All right. Well, I know the Colts play the Jags again on, let's see, what is it, the last day of the regular season, January Correct. 9th. Yep. All right. We'll see how that plays out. But before that, we'll see how this plays out Sunday at noon. Matt, thanks so much for joining us. We appreciate it, as always.
You got a mark. It's our guy, Matt Taylor, the voice of the Indianapolis Colts. And what a tremendous dude. I absolutely love Matt. He is he is tremendous. Wherever we get to the combine, we probably sit down for about 30 to 45 minutes and just share stories about our seasons and what's happened and just a wonderful, wonderful man. And I'm glad for him to be the voice of the Indianapolis Colts. Coming up next, it is our Behind Enemy Sidelines interview of the week with DP Sitter. And this week, it's Lara Overton from Colts.com. These two, I believe, if I remember correctly, I don't know if my mind can go back one week, much less seven weeks. But Lara joined us in week six to preview that one. She joins us next to preview this next one right here on Texans All Access. 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 Welcome back to this Wednesday edition of Texans All Access from the Hyundai Texans Radio Studio. I am John Harris, former calculus teacher. And I know when it came time to finding supplemental materials for my kids in the classroom, I looked everywhere. Well, I'm calling all my teachers out there in the Houston area, especially those teaching third and fourth graders. You want to bring a little Texans football to your classroom? Well, I've got the ticket. And that is Toro's Math Drills, presented by our friends at ConocoPhillips. Toro's Math Drills is a video series designed to help third and fourth graders learn math in the best way possible, and that's with football. Go to HoustonTexas.com slash Toro's Math Drills to learn more. All right, it's time to go behind enemy sidelines with our good friend D.P. Sidhu. And this week, she talks with a friend of hers. She's got to be very close to Laura Overton. Who knows the Colts inside and out? DP, take it away. It's Enemy Sidelines presented by Microsoft. My good friend, once again, Lara Overton, team reporter for the Indianapolis Colts. Lara, I got to ask you about this Colts loss to the Bucks, 38 to 31. What's the mood like in Indy? Is it more frustration that it was a game that they could have had in hand? Or is there some optimism that the postseason chances are looking pretty good with Tennessee losing two in a row. Well, it's a little bit of both. And unfortunately, this is a feeling that the Colts know all too well. This is not the first time this season that the Colts have had a double-digit lead on a playoff team and let that evaporate. When you look back to a 19-point lead on Monday Night Football in Baltimore against the Ravens, the Ravens were able to come back from, and the Colts were at home hosting the Tennessee Titans in what was a must-win situation, got up 14 nothing and then ultimately lost to Tennessee at Lucas Oil Stadium in that game. And then it happens again, where you build a double-digit lead over the reigning Super Bowl champions, and through just a series of very unfortunate turnovers for the Indianapolis Colts, a really uncharacteristic turn of events for them, because the Colts are a very disciplined team, typically. But fact of the matter is, when you're facing Tom Brady, there is so little room for error that he was able to capitalize, you know, those opportunities in which Shaq Barrett gets a strip sack on Carson Wentz. They were able to get points off of that. They were able to come back, you know, capitalize on interceptions in those situations. And, you know, the Colts were not able to close out games. And that has been a point of emphasis really over the course of this season is that this, this team needs to find ways to finish better against playoff caliber type of teams. We saw them play their best game of the year against Buffalo. They were riding high off of that victory. So there is tons of reason for optimism. And one point for Frank Reich has been this AFC picture is 
still wide open. No one has taken a stranglehold really on this conference and, you know, within this wild card picture in particular. You see the way the Tennessee Titans are reeling, thanks a little bit to the Houston Texans, helping them to that two-game skid. This is an opportunity where if the Colts are going to position themselves to make a December run, they have to have a sense of urgency about it, and it starts this weekend in Houston. You mentioned the game at Buffalo, and I think we're still all talking about Jonathan Taylor. He probably rushed for another touchdown again. Five, I think he's still running, actually. He's still I think running. He might... Five touchdowns, four rushing, one receiving, and everybody sort of was talking about him in that MVP conversation if they weren't already. So he has put up 100 yards rushing in five of the last seven games. I mean, he's only in his second year, but what do you really factor in for the key to his success in that ground game this year? It is his dogged work ethic and then this incredible balance of confidence yet humility that he has. He is an incredibly, not just unique athlete, he's a very unique person in the sense that he exudes a confidence without being arrogant. There is a sense that this team gets when Jonathan Taylor is in the ball game. He gets that ball in his hands. The way he breaks tackles and takes defenders with him on the run is incredibly impressive. He's behind a great offensive line. I mean, when you look at Ryan Kelly, Quentin Nelson, Braden Smith, all of the guys who he has working up front, they are certainly to be credited and well so for the opportunities that Jonathan Taylor has had over the course of this season. But Jonathan Taylor went into the 2020 offseason coming off of that 2020 season incredibly committed because he finished so strong on that late half of the season. He was thrust into the starting role when Marlon Mack went down with the Achilles injury, and he had to get up to speed to be the bell cow number one guy very quickly. And he started figuring it out on the back half of the 2020 season. So coming into 2021, Jonathan Taylor knew what he was going to be expected to do, and he welcomed that challenge in terms of being the guy. And, you know, unfortunately, because of the injuries we have seen to backs across the league when you look at the situations that guys are dealing with right now I mean Derek Henry currently on IR you just see Christian McCaffrey lost for the season Dalvin Cook is dealing with injuries so when you look at backs he is certainly you know one of the most reliable dependable backs that you have and he also one of the things that's interesting this is something you know within the AFC South conversation we always hear that Derrick Henry gets better as the game goes on that's a tendency that we've started to see Jonathan Taylor have this season in particular this guy does not get tired we heard Chris Ballard the general manager for the Colts say he thinks he's one of the top five weapons in the league right now And one of the things that's really encouraging to him is just to see the growing confidence that Jonathan Taylor has within this offense and also the situations that they're putting him in. When you think about late in the game against the Bucs, the Colts needed a score. Where do they go? They went straight to the hands of Jonathan Taylor and he got them right back into, you know, that ball game late. Yeah, he didn't rush for as many yards in that Bucs game and he had about as half as many carries as he did in that Bucks loss versus how many carries he had. He, he had 32 carries uh, against the Bills a, a week earlier. How do you explain that as far as his workload? You know, is it a matter of not putting him in as, as hard and for as many carries as you did the week before? Is it a week-to-week sort of a plan? Or do you see Frank Reich sort of bouncing back and just letting him carry the rock for as many times as possible here when they face the Texans? 
this is a very hot topic around Indianapolis and has been, you know, for the last 48 hours post game in that a lot of people were pointing to why Jonathan didn't get more carries in that game. And if you go back to Frank Reich's Monday press conference, he gave a very lengthy opening statement. And we don't often see this just level of transparency from head coaches where they really open up the book and they explain to you, okay, I know a lot of people are questioning why Jonathan didn't see more touches over the course of that game, especially, you know, second quarter on. Okay, here's why. Here was a situation what we were dealing with. And he went through a full explanation. A lot of those were RPO situations. And what they were doing is taking what the defense gave them. Be mindful. The Bucs are one of the top run defenses in the entire NFL. They have massive playmakers up front. They got Vita Vea back in this game. You saw the disruption he was able to have up front. So this was a defense that was out to prove we are not letting happen to us what we saw happen to the Buffalo Bills defense one week ago. They had a great scheme for it. And one thing that Frank Gray explained was that they had a lot of loaded boxes. They were really prepared to stop the run. They knew that the Colts were going to try to do that. So the Colts were forced to go to more of a passing offense. And one of the explanations that Frank Wright gave is, I really wish I would have passed it a little bit sooner because they were very productive in the first half. Carson Wentz had three touchdown passes in the first half. That's the first time he's done that since 2017. Ashton Doolin, T.Y. Hilton, Jack Doyle all got in the end zone in the first half. So they were seeing production in that regard. It really is such a credit to Tampa Bay and their outstanding defense. Let's not forget what that defense did in the Super Bowl one year ago, what they're capable of doing. So what the Colts have to do, two things. They have to find ways to win in multiple ways. They have to be able to pass the ball and be productive in the passing game when they don't have Jonathan Taylor. And then they also have to do a better job of closing out games when they are able to build leads. They've got to do a better job of sustaining leads, holding on to second half leads when they are able to build those up. And a lot of that comes down to maturity and experience. And we're starting to see this Indianapolis Colts team be a team that is on the upward trajectory. I think Carson Wentz is going to play his best football in December. Yeah, I was going to ask you about Carson Wentz because the last time these two teams faced off, he was still sort of dealing with the the double ankle sprain. And it looks like that's just a far distant memory for him. His mobility looks better. He looks better overall. What about his chemistry with the receivers? Um, it's hard to believe that, you know, the, the, the Colts have had different uh, starting quarterback every single year for the past several years. But how has his chemistry come along here through this many games here now heading into the final stretch of the season? I think the chemistry was well, well illustrated in this game against Tampa Bay early on when you saw the targets to the two most veteran guys in your locker room in Jack Doyle and T.Y. Hilton. If you can believe it, I know this is probably something that Texans fans don't really want to be reminded of, but it was the first time that T.Y. Hilton got in the end zone all year because he's dealt with all of the injuries coming back from the neck surgery, which cost him, you know, the early part of this season. So T.Y. Hilton seems to be coming into, you know, vintage T.Y. Hilton form when you saw him on that touchdown against Tampa Bay. So you saw him clicking with the two most veteran guys on the roster. When plays needed to be made, he went to, you know, the 10-year a nine-year veteran in T.Y. and in Jack, and then also, you know, had an incredible touchdown to Ashton Doolin. And Ashton Doolin is the guy, you know, who was undrafted, kind of overlooked in a lot of situations, made the roster in Indianapolis because of his impact on special teams. And, I mean, he had a, a 
remarkable explosive play from Carson Wentz in that game. We are starting to see Carson gain a lot of confidence, not only in how he's clicking with his receivers, but also in the opportunities when he's been able to gain ground with his feet. We saw him in Buffalo take off and run on third down and get an 18-yard gain. And I asked T.Y. Hilton about this, and he said that that just brings this mentality of physicality to the offense when you see him willing to kind of take those risks and sacrifice himself. He said when, when quoting T.Y., when you see Deuce take off, it fires everybody up when you see that from your quarterback. And one of the things that T.Y. told me was, I think what he was most proud of, uh, Carson, wasn't so much the, the yardage he was able to gain, but the fact that he actually slid. Uh, on that play and was able to be smart when he went down. And we are seeing, we've seen really over the course of the season, a budding chemistry in particular with Carson Wentz and Michael Pittman Jr. A lot of the attention from the 2020 draft class certainly goes to Jonathan Taylor. Michael Pittman Jr. has deserved a lot of that. He was one of the most productive wide receivers in the league on third down. The Bucks completely shut that down um, on Sunday. They knew those key playmakers who they were going to be targeting. But in most situations, we have seen Carson have a ton of confidence, especially in third down situations, in Michael Pittman's ability to win the 50-50 ball. When you go back to the Sunday night football win in San Francisco, that was one of the more impressive things to me was how frequently Carson targeted Michael Pittman Jr. in those times of situations. And not only when Pittman was able to make the grabs in critical situations, but also the way he was able to really frustrate defenders and draw some pivotal DPI calls as well that gave, that gave the Colts valuable yardage in those situations. So I think that to me seeing really Michael Pittman's emergence over the course of this season is indicative of how Carson is starting to bring out the best in the guys who are surrounding him in these weapons he has in offense. All right, well, let's switch gears and talk defense. Darius Leonard through 12 games has 10 forced turnovers. What can you say about him? I know he's the team captain, but how impressed with him are you on his ability to get to the ball and, and why do you think he's been so successful in getting those takeaways this year? Well, DP, when we talk about earlier, you mentioned Carson Wentz was hampered with those two ankle sprains. Darius Leonard is dealing with a severe ankle sprain. He had surgery in the offseason back in June, and it doesn't really seem that he has ever felt fully healthy. I'm not sure he has played a single game in which he has been able to completely rely on that angle that he is battling through right now. So to me, that amplifies the impressiveness of the takeaways, the disruption that we have seen from Darius Leonard. It's what you've come to expect from a guy who is fittingly known as the maniac. But what he is able to do is put this defense on his shoulders and carry them in situations where you need those type of takeaways made. I mean, certainly you look to, I think the pillars of this defense, not only do you look at, at Darius DeForest Buckner as one of those, Kenny Moore is another. Those are kind of the, the three people who you really think to be the biggest leaders uh, within that defense. I'd put Zaire Franklin in that conversation as well. So to me, Darius is such a competitor that he has not let everything that has kind of been nagging him over the course of this season, hold him back from the type of production that he expects to have of himself. He holds himself to a very high standard. This is a defense that was pretty bold in training camp. They said, we want 40 takeaways this year, 40 plus takeaways was the goal that they put out there. And they knew that was going to have to be a by committee effort in, in order to do that. Yeah. You were going to need your big guys like a Darius Leonard to certainly lead that charge, but we have seen more guys step up. We saw Isaiah Rogers 
step up with a big interception last week. And one of the, when you think about Darius's playmaking ability, a lot of people turn to the punch outs, you know, which, which he has called the maniac knockout is what he has coined it to be similar to a peanut punch as we, you know, know from peanut Tillman and his days in the Chicago bears. But when I talked to Darius about his ability to punch the ball out, his ability to strip the ball away from ball carriers, he said that this is more mental than anything. A lot of people think that it is physical ability or skill. He studies film of every single person that touches the ball on the opposing offense. He looks at how they carry, what their tendencies are, what their fumble history is. He spends an immense about amount of time studying these factors in order to create the opportunities. And we saw one against the Tampa Bay Buccaneers in which Darius was able to do exactly that. So this is something that Darius really prides himself on, not solely for his production numbers, but knowing what this defense wants to do and continue that streak of takeaway opportunities that they have going back to the end of the 2020 season. The thing is, when you have the defense that's creating those opportunities, you also have to be opportunistic on the offensive side of the ball and continue to capitalize on those. Yeah, the peanut punch, we're familiar with it. Levy Smith uh, bringing that down here to Houston from his days in Chicago coaching Peanut Tillman. All right, Lara, before I let you go, I've got to ask you about Hard Knocks. We saw that announcement come down. It's the first time Hard Knocks is filming in season, which is super exciting for fans. I don't know if it's super exciting for the teams because that seems quite invasive to have all those camera crews in the locker room in the middle of the season. And oh, by the way, I'm sure coaches don't really love uh, to have all the, the cameras and the crew around them while they're trying to game plan. But what's that experience been like? You guys are the first to try it out. It has been so interesting and it's exciting. <laughs> interesting. It's, really exciting. Uh-huh. It's, it's definitely been interesting. Uh, basically because you think about, you know, the dynamic of you have your in-house production. I mean, like you guys do, you guys do a fantastic job with your own docu-series and all of the the internal content that you guys are are putting out there. So we have a lot of collaboration, of course, between NFL films and what we're gathering and what they're gathering. So it has been a, a fantastic process from that regard. And when Frank Reich was asked about the Colts being, you know, put on this, this platform and having this spotlight of hard knocks, he said, you know, they've been approached about hard knocks in the past doing this. And he said he felt like that this was a point where when he was approached by Colts owner Jim Ursay and general manager Chris Ballard, he felt like that there was the maturity within the locker room that you need to be able to handle this. He thought it was an exciting opportunity to spotlight his guys, not only in terms of the players they are, but more so who they are off the field, all the work that they do within this central Indiana community spotlight on who they are, you know, as family guys, as fathers, as husbands. And, you know, for Indianapolis to long be regarded as one of the, and I hate this phrase, but quote unquote, smaller market teams, this is a huge opportunity for the rest of not just the league, because I think that the league is well aware of the Indianapolis Colts, but, you know, for casual football fans to learn a bit more about the organization and about these guys. And, you know, Coach Reich has an incredible story from his Buffalo playing days. I mean, his, his, you know, long tenured career as a backup in Buffalo, the success he had leading the greatest comeback in NFL history, and then translating that over to being a head coach and getting the opportunity with the Indianapolis Colts and bringing in Carson Wentz. There are some very interesting storylines and dynamics uh, that there are. And I mean, what a season for them to come in with the way that this whole season started out, you know, going down 0-3, fighting their way back, beating Buffalo, and now having 
you know, this climb, which is, you know, the famous mantra of Frank Reich, you know, cl climbing the mountain is how he sees and illustrates the season. Now you're trying to see this through the month of December. It's going to be really interesting to see the stories that they tell that complement what this team is battling on the field and kind of how they're all giving this uh, some additional flavor from outside with the different perspectives that they're able to, to show. And it's fun. It, it really, one of the things that I've loved is being in the meeting rooms, hearing some of those conversations that are happening, because, you know, we know what game days are. We know what the locker rooms are like. We're not necessarily from a in-house production or from being team reporters. That's not showing us anything much different than what we have come to expect. But when you really get that valuable insight, when you hear Scotty Montgomery talking to Chris Ballard, Scotty Montgomery, the running backs coach, he and Ballard are talking about the production of Jonathan Taylor, Brian Baker, the defensive line coach is talking about the task that they have, or, you know, Bubba Ventrone is famously roasting guys on, on special teams. Uh, he, he had a guy who was on kick return who ended up like taking a tumble. And it's fun because you get to see a lot of what these guys love about the game aside from playing games together, aside from the time that they're on the field, you see how much of the camaraderie that is built outside that in terms of meeting rooms, in terms of just being around one another and then being out and doing a lot of work within the community. Yeah, I think that's one of the things I loved most when Hard Knocks was here, just seeing those conversations, the normal everyday work conversations that we're not privy to. We see the players and everybody when they're in front of the media, but behind closed doors, coaches, uh, the front office, what they're talking about. That's it's always fascinating. It's even more fascinating that it's in season. So some great storylines for hard knocks Some great storylines heading into Sunday's game. Lara, appreciate the time as always. And looking forward to the game. Looking forward to it as well. Thanks for having me. Oh man. I keep forgetting about that hard knocks angle. I watched the first episode on our flight uh, to take on Tennessee. And I watched that first episode. I thought it was good. In season's a little different. I like the way the HBO kind of set things up. They showed a special teams meeting and, Talked about uh, Bubba Ventrone, who is the special teams coach. He talked about Zaire Franklin. He said, look, I think he can get one. And Zaire, I think you're the guy to get it in the game. Zaire Franklin blocked it, uh, and the Colts were able to pick it up, EJ Speed, and get to the end zone. And it was just interesting, kind of the foreshadowing, bringing all that in. So it was really kind of a neat episode. So I can't wait to see the next few. And, of course, the Texans will, I would imagine, be featured in some way, shape, or form. On this, uh, I don't think it's to be this next episode, but maybe one down the road. Uh, not next, not this week's, but next week's potentially. So looking forward to seeing how the Colts prepare for the Texans. All right, we got to go around the NFL as we finish up right here on a Wednesday edition of Texans All Access. We got one final segment this Wednesday edition of Texans All Access. I am John Harris, your host. Glad to be with you and love to drop a little statistical knowledge on you. And I will with the Schlumberger Stats Challenge. To take the Schlumberger Stats Challenge, go to HoustonTexans.com to learn more. All right, here it is. And I don't really understand this all that much. But there is a there's a stat out there called DVOA. You've probably heard Seth Payne talk about it. My man Mike Meltzer used to talk about it all the time. I don't really... Like the analytics, some of the analytics stuff, I don't even like, what does that mean? I just know that the higher you are on DVOA, it's better than just looking at yards. They give up 100 yards. Okay, they give up 100 yards. Like I can tangibly see 100 yards. But DVOA brings in a lot of different things. I think it's a better and more true measurement of a particular unit, offense, defense, special teams. According to Football Outsiders, with their rating of DVOA, 
The Texans are ninth. Two, four, six, eight. I'm sorry, eighth in DVOA. In defense, overall, throughout the league. Buffalo, New England, Arizona, Dallas, New Orleans, Tampa Bay, Carolina, your Texans. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Eight. Eight in the league in DVOA defense. And I know that sounds like, wait a second. It seems two and nine. How is the defense rated that high? Well, there you go. It's a strictly numbers-based. I mean, I'm looking at it. There's weighted DVOA, past DVOA. There's a category called Dave. I don't even, I don't know. I don't even know that I want to even try and explain what DVOA is. But essentially, it's defense-adjusted value over average. So they take a number of different aspects into it and come up with DVOA. They also have for 2021 only Dave. DVOA adjusted for variation early. So this is very stat geek, schlumberger stats challenge type of stuff. But I know this. I know in DVOA... If you're up there pretty high in DVOA, uh, you can feel pretty good about what that unit's doing. And I think people do feel good about what the Texans' defense is doing. We get the offense to match, and eh, who knows what might happen at that particular moment. All right, let's go around the league and get some info to you. Some of this might matter as it pertains to fantasy football, in particular tomorrow night. Cowboys are taking on the Saints in New Orleans. Taysom Hill will start at quarterback. Now, I mentioned fantasy. I don't exactly know how Taysom Hill kind of fits into all of that. I don't, the fact that he's playing quarterback, I would imagine you have to play him as your only quarterback. But just know Taysom Hill is starting for the Saints, a team that started off gangbusters. But the last few weeks with Trevor Simeon after Jameis Winston, it's not gone well. Well, now it's Taysom Hill's opportunity against Dallas, one of those teams I just said were ahead of the Texans in DVOA on defense in particular because they have Micah Parsons. So there's that. The Seattle Seahawks needed some running back help. So the Texans might actually see Adrian Peterson for the second time in about four or five weeks because he is signed to the Seattle Seahawks practice squad. Now, In that game against Tennessee, it was very, very clear Adrian Peterson is not Adrian Peterson, like you remember. But the Seahawks, with Chris Carson down, a lot of other bodies down, they decided to go out and get Adrian Peterson and see that he's got just a little bit left in the tank. And Daniel Jones not completely ruled out for week 13, but I think he's going to be ruled out. He's ruled out for a neck injury, which is ironic because the guy who will start in his place is Mike Glennon with the longest neck known to mankind. So there you go. Tonight's show. Really appreciate Mark and Nick Casario and D.P. Sidhu and Lara Overton and Drew Doherty and Matt Taylor. To my man, Chris Santiago, back in studio. All you guys for listening. Thank you so much. We'll see you tomorrow. And as always, go Texans.